The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everyone. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. When we started this sequence of programs three years ago, one of the most provocative items and one of the most provocative topics that we had been involved with and brought on to the program is the entire question of bridging the connections between biblical archaeology and uh, and the actual Bible, because as all of you know, the Bible is probably is unquestionably the most significant uh, piece of literature in Western civilization, and there have been many many findings and many publications uh, around the theme of how closely the Bible is actually connected to uh, the archaeological findings in the area that's known as the Holy Land. We had a couple of programs about this in the beginning of this series, and we continue our studies and, and, uh, and programs on that theme. And today we are looking at recent developments and more general theoretical questions about these connections between the Bible and the archaeological record. My very special guest today is Dr. Aaron Meyer, who is at Barilan University in Israel, and he is a professor at the Department of Land of Israel Studies in Archaeology, and he teaches biblical and ancient Near Eastern archaeology in that program. He has authored numerous articles and volumes on this theme, and it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Meyer to the program. Thank you so much for appearing. Hi there. Um, thanks for having me. So let's start with a very basic question, and that is, uh, what, what, how did you get started in archaeology general, and what drew you to the entire question of biblical archaeology to begin with? Okay, well, actually, I think when I started archaeology, I was thinking of going into uh, prehistoric archaeology. Uh, and for whatever reason, as I um, started my studies, um, let's call it Bronze and Iron Age archaeology of the Levant, uh, tickled my interest more. And that's more or less what we would define as um, biblical archaeology. 
And from there, it's all history. I've been dealing with primarily Bronze and Iron Age archaeology for the last, um, wow, a long time, <laughs> 30 years or something. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Even more. Even more. Yeah. When I was going to school, and this is just a sidetrack because I think a lot of people would be interested in in sort of the the entire question of archaeological pedagogy. Um, prehistoric archaeology was more science oriented at that time, and biblical archaeology, at, at certainly in the seventies, was sort of uh, sort of subsumed under the heading of classic archaeology, a more humanistic perspective on the entire question, less anthropological. Has has that changed, or is that pretty much basically how things are still developing in Israel in terms of the study of archaeology? Well, I think the – first of all, in Israel in general, archaeology is studied almost always in the context of the humanities uh, as opposed to um, in North America where it's more often in the social sciences, you know, within a department of anthropology most often. Um, and uh, that being said, um, there is a – a clear trend in the last, I would say, five to ten years uh, in which archaeology and many of, let's say, the cutting-edge archaeologists are uh, using a much wider toolbox of various uh, scientific perspectives, including the, let's call it the hard sciences, but also all the other um, aspects. I think, in general, um, Archaeology of the Levant, and let's call it biblical archaeology if you want to, uh, is becoming much more open to a broader range of inter- and multidisciplinary approaches to, to studying the past. And so there is uh, basically, I wouldn't say it's, it's similar to, to an older version of what's going on here in the States, but, but certainly there's more interdisciplinary focus in what would normally be called classical archaeology, and I would also include, like in a broader sense, uh, Greek-Roman archaeology. There mm -hmm. also just seems to be more of a tend to follow in the footsteps of hard sciences and integrating um, mm -hmm. so many different disciplines in archaeology, uh, in, in, in science rather, to explain archaeology and to develop theories uh, on all themes. So you're saying that's being mirrored in biblical archaeology as well. Uh, that's being mirrored very much in biblical archaeology, and I think also we're, uh, to a certain extent, um, some of the, uh, the excavations and, and archaeological projects in Israel have pushed the envelope uh, very extensively so much so that um, some of the um, the way that we're using uh, the various sciences in the field is something that's almost not done anywhere in the world. I mean, the f we have in some of our excavations uh, full-scale labs with um, 10, 15 different researchers working um, with the, let's call them the plain vanilla archaeologists in the field, not waiting for for the archaeologists to find the find, package it, and send it to the lab and get the results um, days, months, years later, but rather on the spot in uh, in a fully integrated um, collaboration, get it, get a lot of the results and the analysis done right in the field as the excavation is going on. 
And that's, of course, a trend that's uh, accelerated almost everywhere in archaeological mm -hmm. projects because of the uh, surge in methodological and technological advances that link, for example, computers to mapping information and allow us to analyze artifacts and findings right on the spot with, with high-resolution imagery, et cetera, et cetera. So this is going well, I would on. Say in addition, I would say in addition to imagery, but uh, one, of the, one of the things that we're doing, and I think there are other places, but it's not yet uh, widespread, is that actually bringing the analytic equipment into the field, whether it's um, uh, infrared spectrometers, whether it's uh, an XRF, uh, and these are things that because of uh, the miniaturization of many of much of this equipment and the fact that they're hardened, we can bring them into the field. And then um, the advantage to that is not only that you get quicker results, but that um, you have... Uh, understanding of the context. For example, if you're excavating a sediment that you don't understand what it is and a, a quick analysis on the spot it gets you an idea that it's a, a type of plaster or it's a phytolith or it's, some, some, it's, some, it's something connected to metallurgy. So you change your tactics in your excavation accordingly and you can then um, retain the, the data in a better manner than if you would have found out about it you know, a year later, and then you can't go back and excavate it because the everything's been excavated away, and what it, what was preserved was preserved, and what was destroyed is destroyed. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, you're saying, really, and, and and we've seen this obviously in many many ways, is that the re research design can be modified on the fly based on interim results that you're getting. Uh, because of the application of analytical techniques at an earlier stage than they would have been used there, uh, in previous times. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I, listen, I think to a certain extent, in general, in archaeology, and this is, I, I don't think it's only true for um, you know for archaeology in the Levant or biblical uh, archaeology, is that the, um, the the toolkit that we're using has changed so drastically in the last uh, couple of decades, um, and it's expanded so drastically that to a certain extent, comparing archaeology that I was taught or my teachers were taught uh, in the universities um, just a few decades ago and what we're doing today, it's almost the difference between 19th century medicine and 21st century medicine. It's the yeah. same profession, same profession, but it's, it's, a, it's a completely uh, different set of tools. I think you're right, and you know, at a certain point, and I don't want to get into this too great, it's a question of uh, theory and methodology sort of, not necessarily clashing, but the methods are accelerating so fast that it, it sort of changes the way you do things, and that the sequence of, of looking at traditional ways in which archaeology do, uh, is done is, is uh, largely changed, and I think we are saying the same things. Getting back, though, to uh, this entire question, which I, I think most people would find very, very fascinating, and, and, and I leave it up to you to sort of direct this, the, the ability to translate and to link up the Bible with archaeology itself. What is your perspective on that, and how has it changed in terms of, of, of what the public is seeing and what the public is understanding? Well, that's, uh, that's uh, as you said, it's a fascinating topic, and I think there's various directions uh, involved here. One is uh, we have to remember that the, the Bible, besides being the most important literary text of the Western world, is also one of the most important ideological texts of the, of the Western world. Uh, and, and for some people, it's an infallible, uh, untouchable object. 
And so um, it's, it always um, uh, brings out a lot of uh, interest and also passion and sometimes anger and other things. Uh, now, that said, um, uh, I think it's recognized by just about everybody that um, um, the, the Bible, to a certain extent, less or more, does represent uh, aspects of antiquity. Now, according to a, a traditional interpretation, it would be it's more or less a direct word from God, and, and whatever said there happened exactly as it said. And according to a more um, uh, critical or um, scientific interpretation of the biblical text, it's rather a complex text uh, written over a long period, uh, edited over a long period, and, and to a certain extent, I like using the analogy that the biblical text is like a, uh, a Middle Eastern tale, multi-period uh, site, layers upon layers uh, of materials from various periods, and sometimes um, because of a little hole that a mole dug, some later material can go down to the earlier periods, and sometimes some earlier things go, early objects go up to the later, later periods. And so when we look at the biblical text, and this, I'm saying this not as an archaeologist, but as an archaeologist who utilizes the, um, the up-to-date research of biblical scholars, is that we have to look at the uh, biblical text as a multi-period, multi-layered, complex artifact. And to look at it as, as if we're opening the newspaper or, or a modern history book, and we can read it straight out, and if it says that David stood on his... Um, on his porch in the city of David in Jerusalem and looked over and saw uh, Bathsheba um, taking a bath. Did that actually happen? Will we be able to find that? I don't know. I think instead, though, what we should start looking at, utilizing modern biblical research and the way that they differentiate, differentiate between the different layers of the text, um, can we differentiate portions of the text which date to certain periods? And if so... Can we, when we um, work with the archaeological remains from those same periods, identify things that are um, culturally specific or um, the, the social reflections in the biblical text? Can they be seen in the archaeological record? So, for, for example, if um, at the end of the Iron Age, let's say the, um, the 7th century, uh, that's a period where the Judite kingdom uh, control is, is capital is in Jerusalem. And uh, that's a time where apparently there was a lot of literary activity in Jerusalem and portions of the biblical text were written then. Um, so those portions of the biblical text, can we see in a reflection of that uh, also in the archaeological remains? Can we see, for example, houses that are built um, reflecting the ideology reflected in the, in the biblical text? Can we see... Um, uh, sacrificial or cultic aspects that are that uh, can be uh, seen and sometimes you can but sometimes you can't and at the same time and this is no less important the recognition that the biblical text is not history it's an ideology and if we read it as history um, we're um, misinterpreting uh, what the uh, what the original writers meant and we're also misusing it because if we go look for every single thing that says in the biblical text and try to find the, the actual evidence on the ground, uh, it's going to be uh, rather disappointing. Um, 
And, and so you're saying it's basically an ideological formation and, and that probably, uh, according to that thinking, it's the ideological perspective that has to be kept in the foreground when we're trying to make these interpretations and to make these interpretations uh, sort of hang together, if you will. That has to be in, in the forefront of what we're thinking. Absolutely. The ideology and the fact that it's a literary cons construct and that even in a literary construct, you can find um, historical information. You can find cultural information. Now, let's take it. I'll take I'll give you two examples. I'm taking it a little, um, you know, out of the you know, out of the box. Um, the uh, Homeric texts, um, they're not historical, but there there is some historical and cultural data in it. And if you want, uh, you want to uh, go uh, really far, uh, Tolkien's books, completely non-historical, but if you analyze closely the type of weaponry, the type of social structure that is uh, reflected in his writing, it, it reflects very often to things having, having to do with Europe in the, in the Middle Ages. Uh, so um, it's not it's not you're not saying again I'm not saying that the biblical text is so lacking in historicity but um, you do have to remember that it's not a historical text and uh, we have to find the historicity in it and not vice versa force force it to be a historical text. The question of historicity is certainly one that I think people need to be familiar with when they start to analyze and examine the Bible in some kind of a chronological context. And we'll explore that question and some others with our guest, uh, Dr. Aaron Mayer, right after these words. Please stay tuned. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Do you feel like you are alone in a desert? Often we feel alone with no place to turn for help and guidance in our troubles that always seem to be so overwhelming. Stop. Take an hour each week to tune in to Stream in the Desert with Dr. Rita Huang. Dr. Rita will share stories of people just like you, intended for you to find some inspiration in their problems and solutions. The most important thing is that you are not alone. Others have been in the same place. Share some time with us every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific, and on demand on the Voice America Variety Channel. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you experiencing a relationship or a relation slip? Without the carefully measured balance of spirit and ego, it might not be what you want it to be. On Relation Slips with Dr. Bobby Summer and Lori Lynn Mann, we'll explore relationships from two unique ends of the spectrum. In addition, we'll have amazing guests, both experts and celebrities, and we'll hear from you, too. 
Relation Slips can be heard live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein with uh, another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We are talking with Dr. Aaron Mayer, who is a professor in the Department of Land and Israel Studies at Bar-Ilan University in uh, Israel. And we are discussing the connections and the uh, lacunae, if you will, uh, between the presentation of history as depicted in the Bible and its ability and its uh, uh, goodness of fit, as we would say in the sciences, between that and the archaeological record. And I I guess one of the questions I really want to get to, uh, Dr. Mayer, is is simply this, that uh, we know those of of us who who have spent time in the Middle East and who look at uh, developments in such questions as complex societies, city-states, we know that, for example, there was a fluorescence of cultures and social and and political organizations in the third millennium BC and that extends uh, even beyond the Middle East into South Asia and areas to the West as well. And and that's clearly historical development. It's also tied to the development of the Bronze Age. How do you look at that as being sort of a fixed point, say 3000 BC, as as sort of a takeoff point for for, uh, biblical scholarship and biblical recounting of the events at, uh, in the Middle East and, and, and going forward? Well, um, I would say that perhaps uh, that's a good way to look at um, the traditional um, uh, chronological framework of the, uh, of the world. Of course, according to the, um, the traditional Judeo-Christian uh, understanding of how long the world has been around, it's 5,000 and something years. Sure. Um, and, perhaps, and perhaps then we should interpret that as... Uh, it's about 5,000 or something years since life as we know it, that means urbanized uh, political entity, entities existed, that's when so-called the world exists. Right. And, and so if we're low, so if essentially those of us who are scientifically oriented are saying, well, this is sort of a transition in human life ways. Uh, this uh, adds the co- question of complex societies into the equation. And it just seems that there's a convergence of a mythological and, if you want to call it, uh, traditional uh, 
creation stories that emerged, mm-hmm. say, in Mesopotamia and the Judeo-Christian tradition and in Egypt. And all these uh, sort of developments seem to sort of converge. And this, of course, is the Bronze Age as well. How do you, how do you uh, account for that and how do you uh, place that into a historical and ideational context in the way that you're uh, starting to look at these things? Well, I think you're, we're dealing with a, um, a large uh, group of societies which are going through um, at least vaguely similar processes, and in those similar processes format, um, uh, again, vaguely similar ideologies. And that's, by the way, one of the reasons why um, um, the term biblical archaeology it doesn't necessarily mean only um, study of the, of the cultures in which the Bible actually existed, but rather the study of the background in which um, the biblical texts formed. And so I think if we want to understand uh, why a text is the Bible formed or why a text such as the Homeric text forms and many others, um, it has to be seen, um, and and truthfully, not even from the Bronze Age. You have to even look uh, backwards into late prehistory and the, and the transition to agriculture and 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 uh, permanent settlements etc i think that also is very important in understanding the development of of religion and and uh, much has been written that the agricultural uh, uh, revolution brought about the uh, the beginning of the formation of what we know today as religion can we say for example if we look at let's say I don't know, if we take a starting point, let's just look at the creation myth as, as, as one of those starting points. That the Gilgamesh myth in, in Mesopotamia, the creation story in the Bible, do these signify a close contact between complex societies that emerged in Mesopotamia, that emerged in the lines of the Bible and also in Egypt? Do we see that there's an interaction so that these myths and these stories of creation just sort of went through a sort of... Uh, an adaptive uh, process when they transferred themselves from one culture to the to the next. I think so. I think I think um, there is both um, internally created myths and, and creation stories, and then they inter interact with one another. And there is no question that we have very very intense long range context between uh, context between all kinds of different parts of the. Uh, of the Middle East um, from earlier, very, very early periods. I mean, right. if, we, if we talk about um, um, the Neolithic or Catholic period, we, have, uh, we know of, um, for example, um, um, you know, materials coming from eastern Turkey into the Levant. And if during the Iron Age, for example, one of the results of our um, of the application, we were talking before of the application of science and archaeology using organic residue analysis, we have identified um, cinnamon and nutmeg uh, being brought into the Levant about 1000 BCE. Now, cinnamon and nutmeg comes only from uh, the area of Sri Lanka. So, um, if things can, if if actual physical things can come all the way from Sri Lanka, there's no sure. question that, that ideas uh, are going to be coming from Egypt and Mesopotamia and everything in between. 
So getting back and again, this is this is foundational information, and I want to develop that into into other topics. But getting back to the third millennium BC situation, the Bronze Age clearly was a major technological revolution, and it would seem to me, and and probably to a lot of people who are listening, that there was some sort of a quantum leap in in. Uh, in, in, in cultural advancement that would seem to have to some degree been registered in the Bible and in accounts related to it. Yes, but in the Bible in a very, very vague manner, because I think what, what we have in the Bible, which reflects the Bronze Age, is the basic um, way of life in the in the in the ancient right. Near East, in the urban right. e- uh, ancient Near East. I don't think we have uh, any direct reflection of the actual fourth and third millennium, the actual early Bronze Age. I know that there are sco- some scholars who would say that the story of Sodom and Gomorrah reflects um, the uh, the early Bronze Age, but uh, that's that's uh, at most in a very very tangential manner. It's not something that's directly there. Um, I think it's more the this is the sort of like the the foundational um, uh, substructure on which the um, the the cultures which are reflected in the biblical text and those are mainly the Iron Age and post Iron Age cultures uh, lay on. I, I agree with that, and, and I guess I guess one of the items that lures a lot of people to examining and and listening to programs like this one is trying to actually get to the more orthodox interpretations of the Bible, the ones which said, well, Moses did this, and the parting of the Red Sea was as follows, and we should take that directly from the text and take it as, uh, in fact, the Word of God. So uh, let's get down to basics, and let's let's talk to the broader segment of, of our audience. What about the entire story of Moses? Was he a person, or was he uh, repre- or was he an individual who who was possibly very charismatic and assumed, as many people do through the course of time, uh, 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 assumed sort of a larger than life persona as the significant events in the period of the Bronze Age and, and later in the Iron Age, as you talk, as they receded farther into the background, but we nevertheless know that these are monumental time frames in the history of Western civilization. What would you say to people that say, who are asking, was there a Moses? What would you answer? Okay, well, first of all, I think um, uh, you have to recognize two things. There is um, religion and, and ideology, and I'm saying this as someone who's a, um, who's a traditional Jew, um, and there's science, and um, sometimes they meet, sometimes uh, they meet less. Uh, and I think if we're um, if we look at the biblical text and use it as an ideological religious text, it serves one purpose, and it serves a very good good purpose for a lot of people. You know, a lot of people find uh, you know a lot of meaning in the in the in the biblical text. Now, um, and so do I, by the way. Um, now. But if we now go, then go and say, we have a story of Moses, can I find actual archaeological evidence or actual historical evidence from, from, uh, about Moses? So then I have to use archaeological and historical tools. I can't say because I believe, and it's very important for me and many, many people throughout the world, right. um, uh, that, that that means that I've proved that Moses exists. Uh, so I have to say, can I find the 
within the criteria of, of the historical sciences, um, the, the data that enables me to say, yes, Moses did exist. Yes, Moses didn't exist. Now, I can't say he didn't exist for sure. I can't say he did exist for sure. Um, there is a very strong memory, and I think um, many of the earlier por portions of the biblical text, particularly when we talk about the Exodus, uh, etc., that's most probably a, uh, a compilation of what we would call cultural and social memory of Israel's earlier um, origins or origin stories, some of it may reflect actual events, some of may reflect memories that have been changed over periods. And, and as I'm sure you know, memory is a very hot topic in general in, uh, in the humanities and the social sciences, and in the last 10, 15 years in archaeology as well. And right. uh, memory is not something that, it's not a, a video recording that we're playing, but every time you remember and you recount something, it changes. So I think uh, stories such as the Exodus, if we want to look from it, look at them from a, a from a historical archaeological perspective, we have to look at them um, through those lenses. If we want to look at them through the ideological lenses, we have to look at it uh, at, at from a different perspective. Now, um, I don't think personally, this is my understanding uh, and my feeling that if I can't say as an archaeologist, with 100% um, uh, certainty that the, the, the uh, exodus occurred, just as it, said, as it described in the book of Exodus, does that mean that um, I, as a Jew, um, will not uh, feel emotionally attached to the, uh, the Feast of Passover in which we celebrate the exodus? No, I, f I feel attached, among other reasons, because for the last 3,000 years, Jews have been celebrating this, fa this, uh, this uh, festival. And so that's the meaning of it. Now, does this mean that I can, as an archaeologist, find it? No, I can't. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, and now, you know, sometimes I get the question, you know, does archaeology prove or disprove the Bible? I think that's an irrelevant uh, question because, first of all, I think Mark Twain said that um, he has no reason to, uh, to prove the Bible because he's just a couple of minutes ago, he held the Bible in his hand. He knows it exists. There's no, there's no doubt that it exists. Right. But the, uh, but the um, I think we have to use if we want to find an interface between Bible and archaeology, we have to use Bible perhaps to understand the text better, to give us the if you want the flesh on the bones, the cultural background. But if we're going to start saying um, if it happened, if it happened exactly like like it's described, or it didn't happen exactly like it describes, that's the make or break. Uh, of the entire Judean Christian uh, civilization and 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 belief system, we're going to fall apart very quickly. And I think what, you make a very very interesting point. And and uh, you had indicated that you are a traditional Jew, so I'm assuming you have a leaning towards orthodoxy. Um, if that's the case, I think, and being somewhat familiar with this myself, there is now an acceptance even within Orthodox circles that it's not necessarily a verbatim 
uh, you have to believe exactly what the Bible says, but that there is a message that incorporates the historicity with the ideational elements of it that brings it together so that even a traditional perspective will understand the complexity of the situation and be at, comp at, and be at peace with it to the point that you had indicated that, of course, you celebrate the, the Passover and you celebrate the traditional holidays no matter what, whether or not you believe that Moses actually went up to the mountaintop and got the Ten Commandments, that it becomes actually uh, such a long-standing tradition and so, so much of an identifiable tradition that, that you develop a connection with that, that justifies it in and of itself. And I think probably a lot of traditional Jews, uh, again, amongst other people, uh, are accepting of that. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. I think so very much. Uh, listen, there are traditional Jews, just as there are traditional Christians uh, and Muslims, who, who would believe that their texts are infallible and what it, what's what is said is exactly what happened. And I have no argument with them that you know that's that's you know it, it's a belief is a belief is a belief. There's no you, you really can't uh, say anything. You just you know just like. Um, you know, I live in Jerusalem, so if you go to um, the Via Dolorosa, um, and where where uh, Christian pilgrims uh, recreate the um, uh, the path of uh, which uh, Jesus bore the cross, now um, from a historical archaeological point of view, it's absolutely clear that the currently marked off Via Dolorosa has nothing to do with the original one. So even if there was a an actual, um, uh, you know. You know, place where Jesus bore the cross. It's not where the where the uh, pil the Christian pilgrims uh, walk. Does that in any way affect the um, the the deep emotional religious uh, 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 meaning of uh, walking along the Via Dolorosa for the Christian uh, pilgrim? Not in the least. And I think that's how we have to uh, approach it. That there are you can have your ideological beliefs. We respect it. There's no problem about it, um, and it fulfills a very, very important aspect. Uh, once we start looking into the historical side of things, then you have to start looking at it at a different angle. And one does not have to clash and and say, uh, you know, because this, you know, then we're throwing everything out, you know, and vice versa. So. And, and we'll get back to this very fascinating discussion on the Bible and its connections to the archaeological record right after these words. Please stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com are you ready for an anything-goes, hour-long foray into politics, pop culture, and societal tribulations? Then look no further than Between the Synapse with host Mark Tobin. Each show features nationally or internationally prominent guests discussing topics that go beyond the usual daily news, sometimes even way beyond. It's a weekly, fast-paced hour that you won't want to miss. Call in to join the party. Between the Synapse airs live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. How do you achieve the utmost success in your life, career, faith, relationships, and more? It's all here in the business of living with host Scott Ventrella. Scott has experience as an executive coach, sought-after speaker, and lecturer. 
He and his guests will offer practical solutions and strategies to help you move to the next level of success, no matter where you are in your life and career. The Business of Living airs live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We are discussing uh, the connections between the narratives in the Bible and the archaeological record and recent discoveries in archaeology that are providing us with uh, invaluable information on the development of uh, religion, ideational elements of religion and worldviews in the Holy Land. Uh, Aaron, I want to digress just a little bit and, and ask you, because you are specializing in this aspect of archaeology, what are the recent discoveries in archaeology in the area of Israel and beyond that have provided some very intriguing insights into biblical interpretations over the past decade? Okay, that's uh, um, there's first of all, there's always one, one of the thing, one of the fun things about archaeology in Israel is not a week that goes by that we don't have something really cool. But if we're talking about the uh, the uh, interface with the between archaeology and the Bible, so I would, one of the most important finds in recent uh, times has of course been the the Aramaic inscription that was found at Tel Dan in northern Israel, uh, which is a part of a monumental inscription that was written apparently by an Aramean king, apparently Hazael, the king of Aram Damascus. And among other things, he mentions the king of the house, the king of, the house of David. Now, this was a very, very important um, find because this text, which dates to the late 9th century BCE, is the earliest extra-biblical mention of um, David or the house of David. And what this means is that, uh, for example, in the context of trying to um, look at the historicity of the description of the of the Davidic kingdom in the biblical text. So there were some that said that the whole um, description of the uh, of the early centuries of the uh, uh, the Judean kingdom that means David, Solomon, 
and 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 quite a few kings kings afterwards was an entirely fic fictional uh, construct. And others said, no, the whole thing exi existed just like it's described in the Bible. And probably it's like most things in in life, it's somewhere halfway in the middle between all the way and nothing. And this find. Uh, gave us evidence that in the ninth century, about 100, 150 years after the time, according to the biblical chronology of David, there was ex existed the knowledge that there was a Judite kingdom whose founding figure was David. So this gives you some, let's call it uh, uh, Archimedes point from a from a historical point of view for saying yes, we can start talking with with non-biblical data clearly of a Davidic kingdom. And this is important because this fits in nicely with other archaeological evidence that now we can start saying, oh, so maybe that's what we're talking about. Now, that said, it doesn't mean that David and Solomon ruled the kingdom from the Euphrates to the Nile, as it says in the Bible. Right. And you, can't, you can't see my hands, but if you can imagine, you know, uh, you know, a fisherman will, will catch a little fish and say he has a, a very big fish. Um, you know, you spread your hands very wide. And the bigger, right. you, the longer your hands are, the bigger your fish is. So it's somewhere in between. It's, there is a fish, but it's not, it's, not, it's not an enormous fish. It's not a whale. Uh, it's maybe not a minnow. Maybe it's somewhere between a, a sardine and a bass. Something in between. Uh, and... Yes, go on. Yeah. And, and you raise a very, very intriguing point because one of the issues that has come to mind, and, and, and this, is, this is one that I think I'd like you to clarify for a lot of our listenership, is exactly that question. David, Solomon, if we go back, I, I think one of the topics that people are interested in, and certainly one that's been addressed a lot, is was there a David, was there a Solomon? And do we go back that far back to about 1000 BC and say, okay, those are the first kings that we really have fairly compelling information from a variety of sources, including the archaeological, that they existed. And I understand that, they, uh, that there might be a little bit of a disparity when you look at some very, very concrete elements of the hard sciences, specifically radiocarbon dating, that can cast a little bit of a light on this, and as well as some architectural elements, Solomon's stables, those sorts of historical st historic structures that also bear on this question. What is your perspective on that? Okay, well, I think um, for many years, um, and, and to a certain extent till today, one of the problems in interpreting and discussing this issue of uh, David and Solomon and the early, um, early Israelite kingdoms, the so-called United Kingdom, is that it's a period in which we have very little written sources, uh, both from um, uh, the, the areas of the kingdom of the United Kingdom, Judah, Israel, Levant, whatever you want to call it, and also um, from neighboring um, regions. And so uh, as opposed to the period before that, the Late Bronze Age, um, or the period of the later Iron Age, in which there's a large amount of written material, we're to a certain extent in the Dark Ages at this period. And now, um, as for example, so if you take uh, the biblical description of the of the kingdom of David and Solomon, you would expect a a large bureaucratic structure um, with uh, archives, uh, etc. Um, this has not been found, and it, it probably did not exist. Uh, now, since we didn't have written material, 
um, a lot of the archaeological remains uh, were, were they try to you know label them. Oh, we have this level with stables and 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 gates, so that must be Solomonic. The one on bop, uh, top of it, oh, that must right. be from the time of Ahab. Now, uh, once you don't have these um, these um, uh, written uh, material, it's there's a lot of guesswork. Now, one of the things that has come out is there still is a very big debate which of these architectural elements. Uh, date to the 10th century and which to the 9th century. That means which are to the United Kingdom, David and Solomon, and which are to the 9th century, let's say more or less Ahab, the time of the, the, the important Israelite king. This debate is still going on, but it is absolutely clear to, I would say, all the, um, the middle of the road um, uh, scholars is that uh, if there was a, a kingdom of David and Solomon, and I, I would say that almost all scholars believe uh, that there was. It was smaller than the kingdom that's described in the biblical text reaching from the Niles to the Euphrates. I would say almost all of the um, uh, the uh, those scholars, let's go with more or less within the ballpark, sure. would, would say that. Would, would say that. And for example, two figures that many of the um, many of the listeners may have heard of. Uh, on the one hand, Israel Finkelstein and Amichai Mazar. On the other hand, which have debated. Uh, for the last 15 years nonstop about the extent and the historicity of the Davidic um, uh, United Kingdom, uh, at the end of the day, they both agree that there was a kingdom. They just disagree on the extent, and they disagree what remains re uh, relate to what, uh, um, uh, to what period, etc. But they both would, if pressed at the end of the day, would say, yes, there was a kingdom of David, uh, but instead of David being an um, emperor, he was a, uh, a tribal chieftain. Uh, but... And, uh, yeah, but again, and we're talking about, uh, as you had discussed before, and I think I, people with sort of an objective perspective should understand that these accounts, these narratives are only as good as the people who tell them, and if they feel like it's imperative that they glorify the military achievements of, of one particular ruler, then that's what they write down. I mean, it's like the Josephus account, it, it, it's, and the Roman Empire, it's the same kind of a perspective, so that if you really sort of sit down there and look at the narratives of, of the Davidic, Davidic codes, and you look at the accounts of what happened in the area from Egypt, Egypt, and if you look at the accounts that happened in Mesopotamia, uh, it's impossible for all these accounts to converge. That's true, and that is why uh, the, the the inscription from Tel Dan, which I mentioned before, is so important because that's that's an inscription written by a non-Israelite, and nevertheless, it it recognized the existence of a a political entity called the the the, the House of David, and that that lends some historical. Um, uh, basis to this figure, David. It doesn't turn it into a um, into exactly what the uh, what perhaps a traditional understanding of David was, but it does turn it into a real figure. But does this become really when we move forward and we look at these traditions and and we try to establish a certain measure of objectivity to this? We have to have uh, items like this missing text that you're discussing. That sort of our anchors, okay? These are a frame of reference from which we can say, you know what? The archaeological record is providing us with some very concrete information here that we should use, and we really have to kind of reference that when we're looking at broader interpretations. Um, yes, and I think uh, we 
when we start looking for, let's say, concrete reference points for biblical uh, historicity, if we move a little uh, later um, to the 9th, 8th, and 7th century and onwards, there we have a lot of uh, textual material that helps us um, uh, you know, match up events mentioned in the biblical text, even sometimes personalities mentioned in the biblical text, and you can start putting real historical criteria into the biblical um, framework. Once you're going back into the time of David and Solomon, and of course, if you're going even earlier in the biblical sequence, there you're, it's all very nebulous from a historical point of view. Can we say that basically once we're getting into the Iron Age and we're looking at about 1000 BC and moving forward, uh, that's when the match, if you, if you want to call it that, between the accounts and anything that we can actually dem demonstrate archaeologically starts to fit much, much better and we have more consistency in the two records, whereas once we get back into the Davidic and Solomon and certainly before that time period, um, then we're, we're on shakier ground and we're looking at more sort of abstract interpretations. I, I don't want to use abstract in the very uh, formal sense, but certainly it becomes more of an amalgam rather than being something that's a little bit, shall we say, more concrete going forward post-Iron Age. Well, I would say from the 9th century onwards, we have a few pieces of, um, of corroborating historical data. Eighth, seventh, and sixth, things are um, in, in large quantities, and, that, and then it's a whole different picture of understanding the, uh, the historicity of the biblical text. Um, but when you're dealing with earlier 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th century BCE and the, and the supposed um, depictions of the biblical text of those periods, whether it's the early monarchy or the period of the conquest and the settlement or the exodus, etc., there you, we really are in a, in a nebulous state from a historical point of view. And th that that sort of makes the uh, sort of the timeline, puts it in, in sort of a, <clears throat> excuse me, in sort of a, a, a more concrete perspective, one in which we can really get a much better fit between the developments and, and the accounts. And as you say, once you really start going back into periods that are Bronze Age and prior to that Calcolithic and Neolithic, then we sort of have to look at more general developments that are pretty well documented in the archaeological record, for example, the emergences of agriculture, the mm -hmm. uh, developments of pottery, and those sorts of issues that give us a broad framework but don't necessarily fill in the dots. Mm -hmm. or I agree. The dots. And, and, and so uh, this is sort of a sequential um, direction in terms of how our understanding forms and how we can come to conclusions and at least theoretical perspectives and hypotheses testing types of scenarios that are actually um, very, very uh, feasible in terms of engineering. What are, in your perspective, in your, frame, in, in your way of thinking, what are the scientific tools that we now have that are going to increase our understanding of biblical archaeology going forward? Well, I think um, uh, there's a whole set of things that are that are being used now. And, uh, for example, um, we have uh, astounding perspectives coming out from um, ancient DNA studies, both of um, humans and of animals. Uh, I think um, uh, the whole um, direction of research, what we, which uh, you know, we've been utilizing more and more recently, of phytolith remains, gives us um, 
completely new perspectives on, uh, on many aspects as uh, for example plant remains um, a function of of, uh, of, uh, of various parts of the site of a house of a floor etc um, I think the uh, the way that we can characterize different types of sediments and understand what we're excavating better um, utilizing in, infrared uh, spectrometry that's an important uh, aspect the I mentioned before uh, um, residue analysis. Um, it gives us understanding of what things uh, were used. Of course, the the the, the much more accurate um, uh, documentation in the field using using the various methods of uh, laser scanning and total stations and all that. Uh, all this improves it, and and all this taken together um, and to to utilize all the research perspectives that exist and that's not only in the sciences but also um, in uh, from social theory from history from from a whole a broad range of things that's what's going to move archaeology forward and I think um, just as I'm sure any archaeologist and I'm sure you know this yourself is that I, I often relate to myself more sort of like a um, the uh, the um, you know I'm it's we have a um, an orchestra, and I'm just the orchestra uh, conductor. And if we want to uh, have um, uh, make good music, all of our musicians have to be top-notch musicians, and all of them have to be uh, playing together. And I think that's how we'll move forward um, with the best and 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 really doing it in a collaborative, integrated manner. A manner. I want to thank my very special guest, Dr. Aaron Mayer. Uh, from Bar-Ilan University in Israel for providing this very, very captivating perspective on the Bible, archaeology, and how we are moving forward in trying to bridge events between them and broaden our perspectives on what the Bible means. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. And until next time, we will see you again, and have a great week. Good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.